0: Like I said, I want to uh, also uh, take a few minutes here right at the beginning of our sermon to do just a few uh, encouragements for you. Maybe you have been trying to do the prayer challenge and have disappeared. Maybe you have not even started the prayer challenge and need extra encouragement. Either way, every time I spend disciplined moments in prayer in my life, every time I make a habit of prayer in my life, I'm so thankful for it, and I never regret any of the hours that I spend in prayer. No, I don't spend hours every day in prayer, but I never regret time in prayer. And I also, when I'm praying, frequently just find myself constructing reasons why I love praying. It's just like a it's a it's a side it's a side uh, result of being a uh, preacher and at prayer at the same time. You just just preach while you're praying to yourself. But I wanted to share with you some of the reasons why I love disciplined prayer. Some of the reasons why I love intentionally in my schedule setting aside times of prayer. And I'm just going to share three with you tonight and then maybe three next week um, just as we kind of round out this month of October and our prayer challenge. The first reason why I love disciplined times of prayer and why I think you should love it as well. Um, Disciplined prayer leads me to slide into prayer at all times. When I have disciplined seasons of prayer, moments of prayer in my day, it leads me to do what Scripture calls me to do, which is pray continually, pray at all times. When I have a discipline of prayer in my life, I find it easier to pray throughout the day. Any of you know what a habit is? A habit is just something you kind of develop from doing again and again and again. There's a there's a good habit and there's a bad habit. Sometimes we refer to bad habits as ruts. I've got a couple of ruts in my life, that I'm always sliding into. I always I'm always sliding into those bad habits. I always chew my nails, right? I always snooze my alarm clock just this habit that I just naturally find myself sliding into because I've done it so many times it's hard for me to not do that habit Now I'm not saying that prayer can become like a bad habit but I am saying when you discipline yourself in prayer you are developing ruts in your life that that uh, lead you to pray more often I pray more when I'm praying in a disciplined way and that's why it's good to have a disciplined life of prayer, regardless of how hard it is. Because you're developing ruts to slide into. Another reason why I love disciplined prayer, I only do what I schedule, not what I think highly about. Right? You can think very highly about prayer, but until you put it on your schedule first, in your to-do list every single day, you probably won't do it, right? I, I need to schedule things Otherwise, I don't do that. I mean, there there are there are things that I do without scheduling, but prayer is one of those things that it takes a lot of self-determination, uh, a lot of uh, discipline in order to do, and you need to put it in your day early. You need to put it in a place that's very obvious that you can remember. Whether it's you know brushing your teeth in the morning for 30 minutes, of course, <laughs> or it's you know during I don't know what you guys do. I drive. That's when I like to pray. Or it's right before you go to bed, you know, you take a stroll or you find a quiet place in the house. There's there's a routine about your day, and if you set it into your schedule, you'll do it. But you need to have it in your schedule, otherwise you won't do it. I need a schedule. And the third reason, we'll say the third reason why I love disciplined prayer, is that disciplined prayer is needed because I am disciplined to work. I I have a life, a calendar, a world spinning that is ordered, it seems like. Designed, it seems like. To make me nervous, to make me worried. I have a life that's set against me, that wants to make everything in my life big and most important and most pressing to me. And I need prayer in a disciplined way in order to think rightly about my world and to respond to it correctly, I need to be disciplined in prayer because my life is disciplined against me to cause me to work. That's why I need constant prayer, because I live in a world that's constantly trying to get me all excited about something else, something that's more important, someone that's more important. No, prayer, I would say, cuts all of my problems down to size. Some things seem big and important, but when you pray about them, they become small. And you get to see them as they really really are. I really appreciate Pastor Steve's um, exposition of Nehemiah 1, where he talked about Nehemiah's prayer. And just a small thought for you here from Nehemiah 1. I'm not going to read Nehemiah 1. But notice, Nehemiah has this big request of God to make. It is, Lord, can you help me before this great, powerful king, To do what's good for your people and to help your people. Lord, can you help me against this world power to find grace for your people? Lord, there's this massive king who I must stand before and make a daring request that could cost me my life. That is the prayer that Nehemiah has. But how does he pray? When he folds his hands to pray, when he closes his eyes to pray, if he did that, the bigness of the king, the largeness of the problem was cut down to size. What must Nehemiah do before he can even get to his request? He must worship God and declare his greatness. He must confess his own sin because when you see God's greatness, you realize your own Sinfulness, and you must confess your sin, and then, and only then, does he actually get to his request. And once again, this is not him trying to get to trying to get to that request and just kind of doing all of this meandering. No, this is what he must do before a big God. He must worship God as God is, and he must acknowledge who he is or who he's not. And then, in, in verse eleven, verse eleven, he finally gets to his request. And notice how he refers. to to the problem. Notice how he refers to the, the king that he must appear before. He says in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He's been praying now for six verses. And to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name. And now he finally, at the very end of his prayer, gets to his requests: Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That's really amazing to me. Number one, how simple his request is versus how large his, his declaration of the glory of God is. But then notice how small his problem really is. He doesn't refer to the king as Artaxerxes. He doesn't refer to him by all of his big, impressive titles. He refers to him as this man. Isn't that cool? I think that's so cool. And that's what prayer is in your life. It sets God where he should be in your heart and in your mind. It causes you to see yourself as you really are. And it causes you to see your problems as they really are before your God. And it's a wonderful illustration of prayer. Okay, turn over to Titus. That was, that was a freebie. Uh, turn over to Titus. Chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Remember, we're we're talking about lives that showcase the Gospel. We want to have lives that demonstrate the Gospel. And tonight we're going to learn another word, another motive, another reason for why we live lives out of obedience as Christians is we want to have lives that adorn. Adorn. Bring out the beauty that is naturally there in the Gospel. This is Titus chapter 2. Verses 1, we're going to read all the way down. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And here's our passage. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not filtering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one, let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this evening that we have to gather around your word and to be encouraged and admonished. I pray that our hearts would be full of imagination and full of insight into how we can serve you and be truly your slaves, regardless of our situation. I pray that you give us humility of mind to see in your word the joy that comes from being your servant in all things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. No situation of life is too low. No situation of life is too hard. No situation is too humbling. No situation is too shameful for you to have an opportunity to demonstrate the doctrines of God your Savior. There is no situation there is no situation that does not also provide God's people an opportunity to worship and serve and please Him. That's not an easy truth but that is a hopeful one in every situation you have a purpose, you have a call even in the darkest, most humbling situation, even in the hardest circumstances you can adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior that's that's hope that's purpose in everyone's life, isn't it? that's what we learn here in Titus 2 as, as Paul now turns um from talking about different age groups to now talking about a certain social class of people that are traditionally seen as though kind of on the the lower end of society, slave, bondservant, lots of translations, but the the word there is doulos, which is traditionally translated slave. Um, It is not always a position you would want to have, although in the ancient world, some people thought it for various reasons. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit. But I want us to learn a few things. I want to learn a few things from how the gospel can be showcased in a slave's life. And I want to focus on the slave just with the the basic thought that if, if, if Christ can be showcased in this life, and Christ can be showcased in my life as well, regardless of how hard or difficult it is. Right? That's, that's the basic thought I want to leave with you here tonight. Just to learn a few things, learn a few things from, from the, the gospel commands to a slave. The first thing we, we learn here is, is from the basic command. That'll be the first heading if you're taking notes. Let's just refer to this as the basic command that we see here. We see bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now, like I said, the title, their bond servant, is probably best translated as slave. And the reason why, um, if you have the ESV, if you have the LSV, this is not a problem for you, uh, but if you have the ESV, they, they translate it the way they do, is it's not because they're trying to intentionally deceive you, it's because they're afraid of all the baggage that you bring to that word slave. But if we just explain what slave means in the first century, we don't have to be afraid of that baggage, in theory. Uh, A slave was someone who was under the total ownership of their master. Now, number one, that's not a very we also bring other 18th century, 19th century, 17th century baggage with us to that title of slave. But there, there is a difference. There, there's a noticeable uh, amount of differences between the slavery that they saw in that day and the slavery that we have seen in our recent history. For one, it was a, a limited slavery. Often it was only seven years if you were, if you were a typical slave in those days. And, and sometimes slaves would even be paid back for their service after their slavery, depending on what kind of slavery they were in. And also, it was not the inhuman kind of slavery, demeaning kind of slavery, often enough, that we have seen in the, the, uh, the horrible slave trades that have happened here. Um, slaves had rights, had freedoms, they even had positions. If you were, uh, for example, Caesar's slave, you had a higher position than a lot of people in the empire, right? You wanted to be Caesar, Caesar's slave, that was a good thing. I'm Caesar's slave, ooh, let me get close to you, let me, let me brush against your coat, never mind, uh, weird, weird analogy. There was a difference in the way they saw slavery, but there was still that basic concept of I am owned, every moment of my day is ruled by another. I am not a free man. After seven years, perhaps I will become a free man. If I am redeemed from slavery, I I could become a free man. But I am not my own man. I am owned by another. There's a difference. But even if there wasn't a difference, the, the Bible actually doesn't care. How about that? 1 Peter 2. It talks to slaves who are like possibly having evil masters. And it's saying, you still have a calling as Christ's slave in all of this. And you need to appreciate that and obey that. You are called by Christ even in this moment as a slave. What do we see here in, in Titus to these slaves? And once again, we don't, we don't know the context of whether their slavery was good or bad, probably because they were able to associate with the local church. They had some amount of freedoms, right? We assume that. But, but they, they are given a command that's very familiar to us in the New Testament. They are called to be submissive to their own masters. Submissiveness means to put yourself under someone. It is, it is often a military term to, to organize your ranks underneath your commander. And notice, Paul says, you are to be submissive to your own masters in everything. There there is nothing that you shouldn't submit to them in, in one sense. But notice, he does limit it. He does say, to your own masters. And this, once again, hints at the humanity that the New Testament assumes, and the Bible assumes, uh, is given to all people. All people are image bearers, for one. But in here, the the slave is not to see themselves as subhuman, underneath everyone, the slave of every man. No, they're simply to submit themselves to their own masters. Why is this important? Well, if you can guess, being a slave wasn't always popular. I mean, sometimes it was. I'm sure if you are Caesar's slave, but chances are on the island of Crete, you probably weren't Caesar's slave. You were probably just a rich man's slave or your neighbor's slave, one of the two. And it was not always fun to be a slave. Matter of fact, there was a great temptation in being a slave to be a grumbler and be a thief. Right? You, you, you would hate the idea that your life is totally owned by another and under another person's rule. And th- that could cause you to do all sorts of things. And specifically, on the island of Crete, I imagine that could turn the reputation of a slave to someone who was very untrustworthy and very unlike. Remember who all Cretans are. Chapter 1, verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How do you think their slaves were? And then the point here in this basic command is you have an opportunity, slave, to stand out in your world like no one else has. You have an opportunity in a very difficult situation to do something that no other slave can do, and that is submit yourself to your own master's. That's the basic command. but but how? how why are they willing to submit themselves to that? Them? This is what we learned in, in another way. The, the second thing we learned from the gospel's call to slave and we'll put it under the heading of the higher aim. We have the basic command, but we also have the higher aim here as well. And this is, this is, this is how the slave can follow that basic command by the higher aim. Paul basically says you can and should freely and willingly submit yourself even to ungodly men in everything because you are ultimately not seeing yourself as a slave to them, but as a slave to Christ. The slave has a higher aim, and that is how they can obey their earthly masters in everything. Notice there's so the first command: Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And then we have this funny little thing that the ESV throws in there, called a semicolon, which I just had a stirring conversation with some of my uh, some students about what a semicolon is. There's a semicolon after that, and then there's another command. They are to be well-pleasing. So, what is the ESV getting at there? LSP does not put it in a semicolon form, so some of you are lost. Some of you are like, what in the world are we talking about here? What's a semicolon? You don't know? You were so bold before, but now you don't know. What is it, Kelsey? You gotta keep talking. Yeah, that's kind of what a semicolon is, right? I don't want to say this out loud because you guys, every time I try to do like grammar out loud, everybody's like David has no idea what I'm talking about. But correct me if I'm wrong though, but a semicolon connects two thoughts that are very close. They could be be two separate sentences but are one instead. So, I mean, that's not what the original uh, Greek is doing because it's written in Greek and not English semicolons. But the ESV is alerting you a construction where two commands are given almost equal play. They have the same uh, imperative commanding force. The well-pleasing is on the same level, it would seem, as to be submissive to their own masters. In one one sense, it could be saying that, that that it's kind of saying it in a different way. And these commands are different in their in their makeup, if you read the original, than the following commands, not argumentative, not pil- pilfering, but showing all good faith. Those are kind of uh, dependent, dependent commands on these two commands. So all to say here, we have another command that has the same force as submissiveness to their own masters, but is saying it in a slightly different way. Now what is it saying here? Well, of course, we can look at the words here. It means... It means you do, by, by being well-pleasing, you do what they are pleased by. You please them. You, you have a high regard in their eyes. You have uh, a, a high esteem in their mind. They are favorable towards you. You are well-pleasing to these men. Matter of fact, this word is a a very powerful word if you look it up throughout the New Testament. Every time it is used, other than right here, it is used in relationship to God. It is used to talk about the kind of pleasure that God has for His people when they seek to be pleasing to Him. One could almost say it is always used in relation to God. This is a a high level of pleasing that these slaves are called to. But that brings up the question, who are you seeking to please? Now, it could be assumed that it's your own masters, because that's the context, right? But it could be argued, just by the use of this word alone, and since every time it is used, it is used in relationship to God, that what Paul is actually saying here is that you should have a higher service in mind. Matter of fact, in other places, like Ephesians 6 or Colossians 3, for example, we say we see Paul saying this, Obey your earthly masters, but not as people-pleasers, not, and not for eye service merely, but doing it as servants of the Lord. You are God's servants, and that's how you should serve. And, and that's the heart of Paul. I would say because of the consistency of how this word is used and and even the cross references that I am highly tempted to suggest to you and actually preach to you that this is actually a higher aim that the servant should have, right? They should say, I am seeking to submit myself to my earthly masters in anything in order that I can be well-pleasing to my true master in heaven, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ they have to have a higher aim actually I would say if if you can live this way with a higher aim about you, you will actually protect yourself from evil from earthly masters taking advantage of you, when you see yourself as God's servant ultimately who is just happening to serve these people or this person it protects you from something called the fear of man. Being pressured into things. No, I'm I'm God's servant ultimately. Ephesians 6.5 says you should serve Him as you are serving Christ. Colossians 3.25 says explicitly, you are serving in this very moment the Lord Jesus Christ. It is very strong. And basically what I'm saying here all throughout the New Testament we see this truth as well. The key to faithfulness to Christ is in whatever situation you are given, is not the position you're in. It's not the role you have to complete. No, the key to faithfulness to Christ in every situation, regardless of how low it is, regardless of how shameful it is, regardless of how humbling it is, is having an imagination of faith. Being able to see that I am not actually serving this man but I am serving the Lord Christ who is over this man and over my life. That is the key to faithfulness, to fruitfulness, regardless of the position that you have in life. Some would argue, my position, my condition, my situation is too hard, too low, too shameful to be worshiping and serving Christ in. Therefore, because it's too low, too shameful, too hard, too difficult, too humiliating, I can't worship Him. And I can be free to sin. I can be free to complain. I can be free to argue. I can be free to seek my own way. I can be free to give up. I can be free to cheat. I can be free to discontent. Is that not how you feel also? Just in in your situation of life, I'm talking about now, right now. In your situation of life, isn't that always the, the, the excuse that we have when our parents embarrass us, when our body is weakened, when our workload is too heavy, when our feelings are all wonky, isn't that exactly the same logic we say? My, my condition's too hard, too shameful, too difficult to worship Christ. No, but the key to that moment is having what we see here. It is having a perception, an awareness, an imagination of faith that I, even in this moment, in how I respond to this situation, have an opportunity to demonstrate worship for Christ and service to Christ. In everything the Bible tells you, you can, should, and are able to serve the Lord Christ. You can make everything an area of worship in your life, and that will make your life more fruitful. And that is what Paul is calling for here. Have a higher aim. But, but what, what does this look like practically? How does a higher aim look like practically in your life? Well, Paul spells it out for you. This is our third heading. We'll call this the practical outworking. And this is um, hinting at these phrases that Paul gives us. And, and like I said, these are subordinate. These are under. These are kind of dangling off of these two commands that Paul gives these slaves. They are, they are kind of explaining how how those two commands work out practically, and of course, these three subordinating commands are, these servants are to be not argumentative, not filtering, but showing all good faith. Here's how. Here's what it looks like to be serving with a higher This is the practical outworking. You have service That has a freedom about it. Your service has a freedom about it. You're not argumentative, you're not someone who talks back, argues against. Now once again remember that that slavery in this time was not easy, not an easy position to be in, and I would imagine there was some resentment and back-talking that often happened with slaves. But I also imagine there were some slaves that were smart enough to not backtalk out loud because that brought punishment. But they backtalked in their mind and in their heart. They argued. They were argumentative. But what did that argumentative nature bring them? It just made everything hard. You ever notice when you're grumbling and complaining, all of my life is miserable, But I'm grumbling and complaining. Why is everything so slow? Why is it like moving through molasses? Because your whole spirit is chained to your anger at this situation. And it's tying you down. But the Christian slave, who has a higher aim in life, has a freedom to their service, don't they? They don't have to be argumentative. Notice, your service has a freedom to it. Your service also has something even more shocking. It has a love to it. You're not pilfering. Basically what that word means is you skim a little bit off the top. Sometimes slaves were entrusted with kind of bookkeeping, and it was very easy for them to redirect a few funds to themselves. But the Christian slave, who is well-pleasing, has every intention of seeking their master's highest good. They're not trying to rip him off. They are... They are serving a higher master, and therefore they are doing everything that they can to make their earthly master successful. As far as it depends on them. Seeing their good is your ultimate intention. And it is a love that you have. Don't you see, by the way, how these verses so easily apply to you in your life, in some sort of difficult circumstance or relationship that you are in? We all are under... Someone. And the Christian can serve whoever they are under with freedom and with love. Why? Because their minds are not simply on that man that's above them or that woman that's above them, but on the Lord that they serve under overall. But maybe you're going to say to me, But but what if my master is calling me to sin? What if serving my Master like this is going to put me in a position of personal, physical danger? And that's where I would say, the imagination of faith comes in so handy. Once again, if you have an imagination of faith, there is a protection that comes with it. There is a protection, right? You, you see yourself as ultimately serving the Lord Christ, and that ultimately guards and keeps you from sin. You, you, you know what your Lord desires and what displeases Him, and that causes you to be careful. I'm serving you, but I'm ultimately serving the Lord Christ. Therefore, I can't do that. This is what we see in the midwives, by the way, and in Exodus 1. They didn't obey Pharaoh in everything. Why? Because they had a fear of God, the Bible tells us. This is also what we see in the early church when they were arrested and they resisted the authority of the city leaders when they told them not to preach. Why did they not obey these men in this moment? Why? Because they saw their obligation as serving the Lord Christ first and foremost. When you have a whole life that is dominated by the sense that I serve Christ, there comes with it a natural protection against people who are trying to fool you into sin. But this is also where the imagination of faith can give you great comfort as well. Great comfort as well. You see yourself ultimately as God's slave, and you can say to yourself, like that last song that we sang, whatever my God ordains is right, you can say yourself, you can say that to yourself. And this actually brings you peace, and you can say to yourself, I am God's slave. I'm under God's ownership. I am God's property. He will take care of his own and protect his own and He will repay those who wronged His own. I can have comfort even in these situations. I can have peace that passes understanding even in hard situations because I don't see myself primarily as belonging to this person or that person or this person or that person. I belong ultimately to Christ and He will take care of me. In every situation, in every circumstance, I would say, even in the hard ones, you can be free and you can be filled with love. You can have something called contentment. Why? Because you are always serving a higher master. First Peter 2, 21 says to these slaves that probably are undergoing difficult circumstances that in this you have an opportunity to be following Christ's example. You can have joy and contentment that I get to mimic Christ even now. It's not easy, but I know my calling that is the that is the practical outworking Your service as a Christ-pleaser has a freedom about it, has a love about it. It also has an incredible opportunity. And this is the last thing that we learn about slaves. And, And we'll title this heading, The Grand Opportunity. The Grand Opportunity. And this is what I've really been driving at the whole time, so please bear with me right here. The Grand Opportunity. Notice, the slave does all of this because... They have a grand opportunity to demonstrate something, to show something. Verse 10 says, in contrast to argumentative or pilfering, the the motive there, the desire there, is to to show all good faith. Even slaves in, in their position have an opportunity. And here's a thought for you tonight. It could be. Could it be? It could be. That the grandest opportunities to showcase the transforming powers of the gospel are found in the lowest positions. Because Paul uses some of the most beautiful words to describe this slave's opportunity. The the lowest circumstances of our life, the circumstances that normal people would 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 hate and despise and be irritated and frustrated by the the Christian slave can see it as an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God their Savior. They have an opportunity to show something. That word there, show means you're you're pointing something out to someone. You're you're causing someone to see something. The reason underneath it all. What is the purpose? Verse 10 tells you, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. The ugliest situation, the most difficult circumstance, has this ability to do something and it's all tied up in that sweet word, adorn. Adorn means you bring out the natural beauty of something. Adorn means... You, you show its true beauty, its true worth. Adorn is often used to, to speak of putting you know, makeup on or, or fine clothes on. You adorn, you adorn something and make it look beautiful. And, and the word here means to bring out something, the beauty that's already there. To bring out the beauty that's already there. And I want to point out something else to you. Notice, bond servants in verse 9 are to be submissive to their masters in everything. Remember that? A really hard command. In everything. In every situation, you are to submit. That's at the very beginning of his commands to the the slave. Like, actually, structurally, those words, in everything, are actually before the command. But then look at verse 10. At the very end, in Greek, at the very end of Paul's instruction to slaves, he says, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. Now, why do I point that out? Is it fun? Is it cute? I would say there's a purpose for it. Do you notice? These are parallel statements. Parallel statements. And they're basically saying to you, in every situation, in every situation, even the hard ones, there is an opportunity in everything to adorn, to show off the beauty of the God of your salvation, to make Him look beautiful like never before. In every situation that you're called to submit, you've got every opportunity to adorn Jesus Christ. In everything, in everything. And the basic point here is, if, if a slave's life has that opportunity, your life can have that opportunity too. Your life too. What is so beautiful, by the way, about the gospel that we adorn? Well, if the gospel that you adorn is not, is not perhaps what the world wants to hear The world likes to think of people in classes. And maybe in this current society we think of people in classes. And in the ancient world they would think of people in different classes as well. Perhaps, you know, Jews or, or perhaps even more common so in those days, slave and free. The world likes to think there are some people in this world that are slaves. And I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be free. But actually, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ actually starts out with a little bad news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ actually starts out by saying, you're all slaves. Everybody on this earth is a slave already. There is not slave and free. We are all slaves We are all the same. But we're not slaves to earthly masters. We are all slaves to this thing called sin. And by the fact that we are enslaved to sin, we are also enemies of God, because we are slaves of the very enemy of God. We are slaves to that which God must separate from His presence. We are all slaves to sin. We all demonstrate our slavery to sin in every little act of disobedience that we perform. Every little thought, every deed, we demonstrate that we are born in sin. Then, All our slavery to sin is also rewarded. We all are rewarded for our sins. Whether that is the consequences of sin in our life, ungodliness, worldly passion, lawlessness, all of these things are actually the consequences of sin in our life. Your life is miserable because you serve a cruel master. You are enslaved to sin, you're under sin. we will also be ultimately rewarded for our slavery to sin in eternal judgment remember the God who is holy who can't have any sin in his presence who can't have any slaves of sin in his presence must commit all slaves of sin to eternal judgment we're all slaves of sin that explains every problem in our world it is all wrapped up in the concept of sin well, this is where the good news of the gospel actually comes in, right? Because it tells a story of a God who saw us as slaves of sin and came and redeemed. Rescued. That word redeemed is actually there in verse 14. That's a slave word to talk about. Purchasing a slave from one master. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. He has taken you from the servitude to sin and all of the glory, uh, gruesome, ugly consequences that it brings in your life and the eternal judgment that it brings in your life. And he has redeemed you, bought you, caused you to become his servant. By his own precious blood, he paid the pardon of all of his sinners that He has purchased. And He causes you to become His servant and to be trained as His servant. And and, and you know what? Your life demonstrates who you serve. Every single day you demonstrate who you serve. And every single day, in every single moment, in every single opportunity, you have an ability to demonstrate that. And the gospel of Jesus Christ shows unbelievers, wow, you do not serve the same thing that I serve. Why is that? Why do you live in a different way from me? Why do you have a hope in death that I do not have? Why do you have a peace about you that I do not have? Why do you have a humility about you? Why do you have a truthfulness about you? Why do you take sin so seriously? Why do you care? In that way, you are adorning the doctrine of God your Savior. Now, now just one more thing. This is a gospel that you demonstrate. But notice your life only demonstrates a gospel that you first articulate, that you first say. The slave master only sees you adorning the doctrine of God, your Savior, because he knows that you have been saved. And you have clearly told him the good news of Jesus. Same thing goes with a teacher, with with anyone in your life that you find yourself under in a difficult situation. Do they know what you believe? Because only if they know what you believe can you adorn what you believe with your works. And that's the point. This is a a glorious passage. It gives such hope to us. It gives such rebuke to us as well. though, Right? We are so discontent with so much more. With Christ, even a slave can have everything. That's amazing. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and this message. And we pray that we would... Be encouraged and equipped by it to serve you and obey you more effectively. It's all in Jesus' name. Amen.